Welcome back to the Perspective Series, part of AIMA's Long Short offering. Each week we bring to you leading CEO conversations from the alternative investment world. Our guests share their visions in a variety of areas, including how to attract and retain top talent amid the fierce war for talent, as well as how to navigate the increasingly complex operational scaling challenges and much, much more. The discussions are led by myself, Tom Kyo, co-host of AIMA's Long Short podcast, and John Budzina, Managing Director and U.S. National Leader for Market Development for Alternative Investments at KPMG. Please do let us know what you think on social media and don't forget to subscribe and rate our podcast on all platforms. We hope you enjoy the series. Thank you for listening. Today, we're delighted to be with Jane Buchan, currently the CEO of Martlett Asset Management and advisor to the FD. P Institute, as well as the retired co-founder of PAMCO. Jane, welcome. Thank you, John, for having me. Jane, you're very welcome. Um, and by any account, you've had a remarkable career. Um, and so how did it all start? How, how did you decide to get into finance? I got into finance um, by one of my professors at university. I was not a, what you would call a stock jockey, a person who grew up following the markets. Instead, I was really interested in problem solving. And as you know, we have a lot of financial instruments in finance. And I, so I got very, very interested and actually went on and did my dissertation on how to solve certain complex option pricing problems, how to price these options, come up with prices and how the markets work. So for me, it was curiosity about how to solve certain problems. I also cared very much about working for retirement plans. And, you know, the fact that at the end of the day, what you're doing is helping make investments to help the average individual around the globe for a lot of the cases. And so that's why I was very focused on that. And at PAMCO, we only had non-taxable investments. And, and, and you know, when you look back, uh, what were sort of those defining moments um, in your career that, you know, you, you, as you look back now, view is changing the trajectory of, of your career and what you've accomplished. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the key moments obviously was getting into the, to the industry. My parents were both professors of medicine. And so I didn't know much about finance and I grew up in the late seventies, early eighties, and frankly thought of finance as investment banking. It wasn't something that really interested me. And so one of the defining moments was when my professor said, Well, there are other types of finance, Jane, and introduced me to asset management. Another big one was when I was a professor, um, assistant professor of finance up at at the Dartmouth at Tuck. I taught some of the very quantitative classes in finance. And one of the things was interesting to me was not only teaching people about how to solve the problems, but I also noticed that I had a lot of diversity in my classes, more than um, the ones the professors who came before me, and frankly, I was replaced by a male and had a different distribution up there. So that's so that was a very defining moment. And then, of course, the very big one is the third one was when I uh, left academia and uh, founded PAMCO because I saw there, there was an opportunity there to help institutions who are interested in investing into hedge funds or absolute return funds. And Jane, what were the discussions during that time that led to that idea moving forward? Yeah, well, if you remember the markets of the, particularly the early 90s, um, it was a go-go market. You know, the the stock market was going up. It seemed like it was the risk-free asset. Every year you could put your money in the stock market and it would go up and you didn't have any risk. And then towards the end of the 90s, um, we had uh, the tech market crash. We had the world changing. And people were looking at ways to diversify rather than putting all their chips just on the stock market. And so what we decided to do is we knew that there were a lot of viable hedging strategies. You didn't have to go to cash. You could outperform cash in many cases by having strategies that instead focused on hedging. You didn't have the, the beta risk of the long-only market, so you wouldn't make as much money in the long-only markets. But it was a better alternative than going to cash. One of the stories that I remember greatly was we had a major pension plan client at a firm I worked with in the early 80s when 1987 happened. 
And it was very sad because, as you remember, in the crash of 1987, we lost 25% in one day. And this pension plan went to cash. And senior management was just so frightened, they spent the next three years essentially in cash with a very heavy cash proponent, and it really hurt the returns. And so that's how I got introduced to hedging back in the 80s and hedge funds. And I just thought that that made a lot more sense than just being in cash alone. That was the original vision for, for PAMCO. And how had that vision changed over the period of time that you were involved? Well, over time, I mean, the firm I joined um, back in the 80s um, well, was actually investing in hedge funds. They didn't even call them hedge funds. They were just funny, long-oriented long managers that had some short positions. So gradually the industry consolidates and you and it becomes defined as a regular subsector. And what happened is the firms were small, um, very, very small, often less than 10 people. They were very, very focused on performance rather than asset gathering. And as the industry continued to mature, you got some hedge funds that became very, very large. Um, I was very lucky to invest in some of them early on, um, others I missed. But then what we started to look at is decided, well, there are real opportunities in the, in the niches, in the small areas. And so we, what we really wanted to focus on, and given that our clients at PAMCO were mostly very, very large institutions, they could hire the big managers themselves or with the help of a consultant. We thought we could add more value by going out and finding the newer and emerging managers who were, who were trading in the niches, ones that you, in the areas that you couldn't put a lot of money because the way the world works is you can find arbitrage opportunities, but sometimes big firms don't take advantage of them because it's not worth spending the resources. Uh, the cost of spending those resources on the opportunities aren't there. And the thing I like about hedge fund land is it's very much blatant entrepreneurialism and capitalism. It's probably one of the purest forms of entrepreneurialism and capitalism that exists out there. You can have very, very small firms that can materially add good returns um, by finding very small ways and exploiting them. So, Jane, when you finally left the firm, PAMCO had grown to more than $30 billion in assets under management. What were all the elements behind this growth strategy? And I note that in 2017, you merged with Prisma Capital. So what was the thought behind needing to grow the business? Right. So, I mean, to some extent, as you build a larger firm, you get economies of scale. But also the other issue is, is that the acquisition of Prisma was really important because it brought in some differential talent. They did, they did, they had services as I said, in the high net worth market, which is something that PAMCO had no services to. They were owned by uh, KKR, which was great to have them as part of a partnership. So, and frankly, they had some very, very good investment and client people there as well as operational people. And so it was good to combine forces, pick the best of the both. But when you run a very large scale business, I think you either have to remain a boutique or you have to get large fast because of the economies of scale. And as you know from the asset management business, if you're going to be a scale player, the more assets, the better, because then you can lower the cost. Now, obviously, that was a, that was a long stretch at PAMCO. I mean, if you had to do things over again, I'm not talking about regrets. I mean, because if you had different you know, strategies you could take during that time, what, would, what might be different? I mean, some of the things that, that are different are, when I look at my career, um, I had very good, in fact, I would argue outstanding academic training, and I got to put that into practice by being, you know, a tenure-track professor at, at a top 10 business school at Tuck at that time. Um, and so that was very helpful, and ha understanding how the theory works, where the holes are in the theory, where, where theory doesn't meet practice is really, really important because I think it's important to have that solid um, grounding. What I did miss um, because I came more from the academic side was sort of that um, uh, probably a few more years in a very big, large asset management firm in more of a managerial role, even though I did spend time at J.P. Morgan Investment Management, it was as a researcher. It was solving the problems. It was, do, it, was doing, it was doing that, not managing. And 
you know, I had to learn um, through experience. You know, I had some very good mentors, some fabulous advisors. Um, people were very willing to share. I found that if you went and asked for help, a lot of senior individuals in the industry were very willing to share or, or, or lend advice, which was really, really nice. But I would have probably benefited by having some more of that what I call managerial experience early on rather than having to learn it from the school of hard knocks. Yeah, so next is like a two-part question. And the first is, you know, what would be the barriers uh, or the challenges to creating a PAMCO today? And, and how different is the alternative investment world now than when, when you embarked on it? And then secondly, given that unique perspective on, on starting PAMCO, what would be your advice for emerging managers now considering starting whatever their alternative investment firm is? So, you know, PAMCO um, was and is uh, PAMCO Prisma, a fund of, of effectively a fund of hedge funds. And you can do it in different guises. I think one of the bad raps in the industry is the fact that of the, the assumption of fund of funds is fees on fees. And I, I think that's sort of a, a talking point, but not reality. I know in our case, often we were able to squeeze out enough costs. I mean, whether it was the cost of reducing audits from a big four advisor because we purchased so many, or whether it was trading costs from the sell side because of our own lines, obviously fee reductions, that you could take basically take the list of our managers and try to hire them yourself, and it would have cost you more than hiring us. And I think that's true for a lot of the really good fund-to-fund providers. In addition, what a lot of the fund-to-fund providers do, and I know we did this, whether it be in, in, in privates or in publics, is they tend to think about how the portfolio is constructed and will often do some interesting things to make a more robust, holistic portfolio, get rid of duplication, um, and, and, and kind of optimize things. And so I think... The idea that a fund of funds is a losing proposition, it's just fees on fees, is not a very well thought out idea. And I think there's a lot of evidence that at least the very good large scale run ones, whether it be in public or private markets, um, really do add a lot of value. It's, it's very different than running a consulting business. I think on alternatives, I think alternatives have become a, a very important part of every um, uh, large-scale institutional investor. Alternatives provide different risk return patterns. And the key to all of this is to figure out what is the correct risk return pattern, what's the best long-term robust risk return pattern that makes sense given where you are. And it's another key in the tool set. What's interesting is there are few investors who have done relatively little in um, in alternatives, public or private. And what I've noticed over the years, because I kind of track their performance, is they either tend to be at the bottom or the top. And as you know, you get a higher compounded rate of return at the end if you have more stable returns. So I think from that point, alternatives are a critical part of the tool set that um, you should consider. They're not appropriate for everybody, but you should consider them. Given your comments on fund of funds, how would you compare that today to the proliferation of multi-strategy firms that are trying to accomplish blended returns and blended risk within that type of infrastructure? Yeah, in fact, one of the big multi-strategies that, that individuals often cite as one of the top ones actually started as a fund of funds way back in the 80s and they morphed into a multi-strategy. So it tells you how fluid that is. I think the issue is, is that it's how involved you are in the management of the money. Most fund of funds that I see and understand who are what are called leading, leading experts in the area, what they tend to do is um, they tend to customize mandates, think about things, how you build a lot of portfolio construction issues. That's, that tends to be where they focus. I think where the multi-strategies do is they definitely do portfolio construction, but they also are very involved, in my experience, how you actually manage it, you know, looking daily at trading. And I don't think um, that requires a lot more resources, um, and so it costs a lot more, and I don't think a lot of fund of funds are very involved in that. So I think that's sort of where the dividing line is. I just don't think there's quite 
such a gulf as people like to think about it. Well, now you have a new role. Um, you're chair of investment committees. And um, so from, from that vantage point, you know, what, what is it that you enjoy most about that view? And what's your, what's your experience is most satisfying in that role? Yeah, so I, I as you know, I, I chair several um, endowment and foundation investment committees, some with CIOs, um, some without. It's very interesting um, because you're stepping, taking another step back. I mean, when I was running PAMCO, I was thinking about how the whole thing fit together, how you build a robust portfolio, but it was constrained basically to public hedge fund strategies. I mean, that's what we're paid. That's what the guidelines were. We weren't doing directional strategies and we weren't doing privates. So not traditional nor privates. But I think what what's interesting about chairing investment committees is you have to step, take an either further step back. Now you've got all the capital markets. So you have to think about privates. You have to think about traditional strategies. And it's a really tough puzzle. I've always had a lot of respect and admiration um, and asked a lot of questions about managing, whether it be pension plans, endowments, or foundations. Many of my former clients will tell you I spent most half the time asking them about what they were doing and how they were thinking about it. And what um, what it's a very hard problem because, you know, there's a lot of pressure and it's become more and more um, complex because a lot of, frankly, I think one of the things that people don't talk about is a lot of these chief investment officers are now paid performance bonuses, not on how their fund does, but how they do versus peers. And so it's become a very um, almost incestuous problem because it's not, what do I think is the best thing for this fund, but how am I doing versus everybody else? And that can create some issues and problems. But it's a very challenging question, and I struggle with it as well. But in that role, you're, you're probably continuously asked sort of about what your favorite investment strategies are in this, um, you know, really perplexing economic environment that we're in. Um, so, you know, we're, 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 we would be remiss not to ask you as well. So what are the, um, what are the ones that are sort of the most popular and the ones that you believe in? So, a couple of the things where I think the opportunities are. Let me change it where the opportunities are because it's important, for example, to have large equity exposure. Um, you know, you don't want to sit and time the market, timing the market. A, a lot of people have tried the time of market. I've seen very few market timers who have success, been successful over a long period of time. Um, and, you know, that's why we have a lot of rebalancing. But it, but some of the, the, the things that are interesting, when I think about investing assets, I think about having a plan, having an asset allocation is super important because you have to know how your risk and return are set and that derives from your asset allocation or one leads to the other, that those, those fit together. But I also having spent, you know, 30 plus 35 years of my, of my experience dealing down at the manager level, um, the managers are very different. And I think one of the things that I take issue with how, some people invest is they set an asset allocation and then they go out and say, okay, we're going to now do, I'll just pick on something that's very popular right now, private debt. We're going to go put money in private debt. Well, we've, we've decided that we're going to put a 4% allocation, let's say into private debt. And then we're going to go out and hire four managers for 1% each. Well, what happens if you find only three good managers? I see very few people that say, I'm just going to hire three and give them one and a third. It's, it's, it's kind of a sequential thing. And to me, what it is is more rather looking at managers to see what managers are doing, where managers whose feet are on the ground, they're dealing with the instruments, what they see the opportunity is, and then bookending that with your asset allocation and bringing the two together. So when you do that, there's a couple of areas that, that, really, that really strike um, of interest. Uh, one of the areas that's really interesting, uh, and a friend of mine pointed this out, who's a, a pretty prominent CIO, is, you know, in venture cap, people come up with ideas, they either work or they don't work, you're backing new businesses. And Silicon Valley uh, Bank backed a lot of fintechs. And now there's been a dearth of money going into fintechs. And that really shouldn't affect to a large, a large degree whether fintechs work or not, you know, it's just the funding source has dried up. 
And so I thought that's a very interesting opportunity. Another opportunity that we've seen is, and I've become aware of, is in the realm of biotech. Um, we, we tend to think it's institutional investors, public versus private. But particularly in a lot of biotech, there are a lot of very small cap biotech companies that go public ex very, very early. It's just something they're interested in. And so there's interesting opportunities when you think about firms that can cross between both that public and private space. And what I love about that space is for all the big funds, they have a hard time analyzing it because they sit there and they go, oh, should this be a public market strategy? Well, then I give it to my public markets team. Well, what are you doing because it has privates in it? Or is this a private market strategy? <laughs> it's got publics in it. What is it going there? And so you're looking for the, 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 those, those interesting arbitrages. I also think there's some really nice opportunities um, on a more structural level in fixed income globally. I think if you were to look at most investment committee members, most of them are more equity-based and equity-oriented, and that's the, where their, their comfort zone is, not fixed income. I, myself, grew up on the fixed income side of the house. I actually have another, on one of my investment committees, another super strong um, investment committee member, and she also grew up on the fixed income side of the house. And it's kind of funny when we deal with our consultant because we're both fixed income gals <laughs> and they're very equity oriented. So it's interesting. But I think that there's some really good um, opportunities now if you think about what's going on with rates and inflation for active fixed income management globally. Um, and I've seen some outstanding numbers from a lot of places because people tend to think about those strategies very passively. KPMG is a global professional services firm providing audit, tax, and advisory services to many of the world's leading alternative investment management firms. To address the specific challenges and opportunities unique to alternative investments, KPMG has dedicated practitioners focusing on hedge fund, private equity, and real estate organizations. Our professionals devote their time to provide innovative and strategic solutions to alternative investment managers in areas ranging from strategy to operational and compliance functions. Through the knowledge of the industry-leading practices and customized technology systems, they provide advice and support that deliver value to these organizations and their investors. For more information, please visit kpmg.com. Jane, have you have you deliberately overlooked the um, the discussion around crypto assets and digital assets? There's been a lot of debate about that, as you know, and it's such a tumultuous year that we've had in the digital asset space. But what are your views on digital assets and also crypto assets as an investment? Thank you for that question. Um, you know, I started my life as a Fortran programmer, um, so I have a little bit of computer science background. But I think the issue for me has a lot to do with public versus private blockchains. And I've looked at it a lot. And I don't see, I have a hard time seeing the use case for public uh, blockchain cryptocurrency. I think there could be some. I think the very interesting use cases in the private uh, blockchain area, we're experimenting in black, back office operations and things like that. And the advantage of a private blockchain is if there's an area you can fix things. Um, so I'm, I'm interested in the technology, but more from a private blockchain and more from a way as a computer science issue to use it to solve certain problems as opposed to trading crypto and digital currency. Obviously, when that's going to get regulated, I think there will be a, an allocation to it from some individual investors. I don't see it. Um, I think it has a lot, a lot further to go to take over the world. I mean, I carry around in my wallet a thing called a Visa and a Mastercard, and the amount of transactions and the low-level fees that they um, have compared to what I've seen the fees and the costs. And obviously, it's an early stage market in, in digital currency. Um, to me, I'd have to see more development in the market and more regulation. That, that's fair. I mean, that's a fair reflection on, on a lot of people's views in this space. But we watch it with continuing interest. Um, let's chat for a moment about what we've experienced the last few years with the aftermath of the 
COVID pandemic, the steps taken by the various federal financial institutions around the world regarding quantitative easing and quantitative tightening. And now we're looking at a variety of different outcomes across the world, whether that be in China, Japan, the US, EU, the UK. Everyone has a different challenge. Yes. Yes. I mean, I mean, yeah. And But when you have government intervention into markets, it creates opportunities. And I think this is, this is exactly, you know, you look at what's going on in Japan today um, as they're changing the way they manage the yield curve there. You look at what's going on in a lot of different um, uh, currencies. This is what creates the opportunities. I think this is very much behind sort of I would encourage people to relook at their um, um, fixed income exposure because I think there's some really good opportunities, particularly internationally now, where you've got structural interventions. And when you've got an actor who wants things to go one way and the market's not there yet, that can be a very attractive investing landscape. And what about the issues of inflation and deflation specifically within that context, right? So you have China that is rumored to be going under certain deflationary pressures. You have continuing, although ebbing, inflation in the United States and inflation on the rise in Europe, but yet we're in this global economy and global investment community. How does that how does that play out from an investment management strategy? I mean, I think the real issue, I mean, again, putting my former academic hat on, is deflation's a really hard problem. We don't, I would argue, very few people, if any, have a good solution for deflation. You look what's happened in Japan over a long period of time. Um, inflation, while it is annoying and bothersome and can be destructive over the long haul for an economy, particularly if it's very high, it's at least something that we have an idea about what the right public policy response is to help control that. And so I think from the view right now is that, yeah, there are issues in, in, in the world, but we seem to be getting inflation somewhat under control. We still have a little more to go, but I don't, it doesn't worry me as much as when um, I look at potentially things like the PE and the equity market today, um, to be quite candid. I mean, we've spoken a little bit about some of the opportunities in the market, but I mean, you talk not only as chair of investment committees, but your discussions with your colleagues who are allocating to the industry. What, what, what else is particularly interesting at this moment? Where do you see the allocations flowing or the majority of, of allocations flowing into, um, into alternative investments in general? Well, obviously, there's been a big move towards private debt. I think one of the things, you know, one of the interesting things in the market is you tend to get really good numbers in an area, and then about two years later, the world tends to move in. So, you know, what's interesting is if you look in the private debt space, um, which is something I've spent a fair amount of time looking at, I mean, there's almost kind of two different vectors there. First off, there's the um, what I call sponsor back debt, you know, working with the private equity firms, just saying, look, you know, we can finance this better outside of the public capital markets. We have more freedom. We can tailor what we want to do. We can do it more rapidly. We can do it in some cases more quietly. And that's a very interesting game because, um, you know, you're providing you're, you're you're in some respects participating in 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 the private equity space, even though you're calling it private debt because it's very keyed off of that. And there's some very large deals there, and I think it's very interesting. Um, at the other extreme, you've got a lot of direct lending going by a lot of firms that you and I never, or at least most people never would have heard of, very small mom and pop shops who have been doing a lot of direct lending. Some of them are very skilled. Some of them understand what the collateral is. It's very asset-based. Um, others of it, it's not well thought out of. And I think one of the issues is going to be is if you hit a bump in the road and as you see rates rise, particularly in some of this floating rate date, and a lot of the private debt is floating rate, um, how are people going to be able to make these interest payments and how do you, in some cases, have to restructure things uh, to make it more sensible business? Um, this used to be done by commercial bankers in a banking context. Um, it's now moved out of the banks um, for a lot of reasons. And now that it's in the capital markets, the question is, are those skill sets available? You know, it's one thing when a deal starts to go upside down, when you get one of these big private debt firms that calls a big 
uh, private equity sponsor and they can work it all out together between the two of them. It's a different thing is if you're buying some middle market, non-sponsored company loans and something tends to go sideways and who's going to go deal with that, that, that uh, borrower, um, you know, how are you going to work that out? So I think there's not a lot of homogeneity. There's not a lot of similarity in a lot of these strategies. And I think I've seen too many investors classified as all one similar strategy. And I think there's a lot of diversity in there. Jane, another issue that comes up with allocation, and you alluded to this earlier, is the extent that the majority of mandates go to the larger alternative investment firms and hedge funds. And I know that PAMCO and Texas teachers share the same philosophies in terms of trying to get a better balance where niche smaller players also get a slice of the allocation. So how do you see all of that progressing and how do we influence that going forward? Well, I think there's two issues. I've been in the capital markets long enough. I've seen several cycles of where everyone wants boutiques. You know, the whole theory being you're very focused, you're very concentrated, you really excel at one thing, you know where your limits are. And then people wanting sort of financial supermarkets that offer everything. And we're definitely in a moment right now where the financial supermarkets are winning. Um, I, so, you know, I suspect at times that will revert. I do think one of the sad things, and I am for very good regulation, don't get me wrong. But, you know, you get a lot of fixed costs with seventy up firms. And sometimes there are good reasons and you want those fixed costs, but other times you don't. And, you know, if you're going to get in a situation where you need a back office, you know, in order to pass operational due diligence, because people just want, you know, a six person back office for whatever reason. But I've heard I've been to enough ODD events where I've heard people effectively say you need six people in your back office. You don't have six people in certain functions, you know, between compliance and settlement and reporting and stuff. You're you're not you know, you're not going to get passed. And then you add your investment team and your risk management team and management, you know, you're talking about a 15 person firm starting that needs an asset base, well over half a billion dollars to be viable. And so I think it's a shame if what we're doing is um, crowding out certain really good ideas and strategies. And I think there are other ways to resolve some of these concerns. And I think, you know, looking at platforms, doing separate accounts, doing some other things are some ways that you can, that very large allocators can be very innovative and access talent. Because at the end of the day, it's the investment talent that's going to make or break it. You can't take a really bad investment strategy and dress it up. You might raise a lot of money if you put the right marketing forces and put the right spin on it, but it's not going to produce the returns. And what we're interested in at the end of the day is the returns. Let's pivot for a moment and, and chat a little bit about how athletics might have influenced your career and your investment philosophies and your and your success. Um, you have an extraordinary background as an athlete and sort of that, I, I speak to the competitive mindset that brings to an industry such as alternative investments. Um, I'm an ex-Ironman athlete myself and have a great appreciation for sort of the preparation, uh, the skill sets and the, and the competitiveness that brings to bear. Um, you were heralded high jumper and a track athlete. You competed at the 88 uh, Olympic trials. And so how much did that mean to you? And how do you complement that experience as you, in your current position? Yeah, it was a very defining moment for me. And I really enjoyed it. I came from the, grew up in the great state of Oregon. We're track and field, you know, home of track and field. I think every child, almost every child goes through a track and field experience in Oregon, sort of state sport. But um, I turned out to be a pretty good high jumper. But what was interesting is I, I was good, but not great. Not that I was great at the end, but I was good, but not super good at the end of, of my high school career. So I went back to the Ivy League and then I finished growing at the end of my freshman year in college, got a little strong. Um, my alma mater owned owned had to buy a 35 pound bar because I couldn't even bench I was so weak I couldn't even bench an empty 45 pound bar um, at the start but I turned into a national class high jumper and obviously they had the ability to compete out of school jump for Nike and go to the Olympic trials and I think that did two things for me 
one is I had the outsider perspective because that's normally not the general, the general um, uh, class. I can remember a woman from a big Pac-10 school, Pac-12 school, saying at the national championships, what is, what is, you know, I went to Yale, what is Yale doing here? You know, kind of like, you don't belong here. So I think having that, that outsider perspective was always important. I think the other thing is it also taught me is it didn't matter how you trained, um, what your uniform looked like, who your coach was. At the end of the day, it all came down to the mark you could produce and you ranked everybody up at the end. And I think that really affected um, my career in two ways. One, diving into a place in hedge funds. I started working in the hedge fund space in 1987. So I was a long, long time ago before uh, a lot of them existed. And so I was willing to tackle that challenge, I think, from that outsider perspective. Being outside the system was something that, that I'd be grown comfortable with. I think the second thing is, it's been a little more of a disappointment. It's why I went to the smaller, I found a lot of great opportunities in smaller funds, is I thought it was about performance. I thought it was about the numbers. And as I have um, watched the business over 30, 35 years, I've begun to understand it's also a lot about how you know client service works it's about how um what the perception is it's it's not just about the risk and return numbers and um i still think that there's opportunities there particularly for lesser known funds and emerging funds um to to add a tremendous amount of value but i think you need you know if you're an emerging fund today you need very you need a very realistic appraisal. So for example, if you're managing $200 million, I think your first goal is to get to a billion if you think your strategy can handle it. And you know, looking for good clients, looking for clients who are really appreciating the return and not so worried about the name that goes on the letterhead. And I think that was one of the big things we did at Pancos. Effectively, we were arbitraging um, the fact that emerging managers struggled, you know, in this capitalistic world, you can find really great numbers from emerging managers um, who couldn't get a lot of traction. And it might be because their resumes weren't as polished. It might be that they officed in an out of the way place that was hard to get to. It might be for all sorts of reasons that really weren't material as to their likelihood to produce future good numbers. And um, I think as we go forward, there's a lot of really good managers. A lot of managers are small because they're not very good. Let me just be clear. It's not all, all good man, small managers are good. But there are but there are some really, really good um, emerging managers. Um, I just hired one in one of my investment committees um, where the guy's got fantastic numbers, a 10-year track record. But, you know, he's not a conversationalist. He doesn't tell a good story. Um, his positions are very clever. But you sort of have to say, but then why did you do this? Or tell me how this is pricing or what's the DVO one on this? Obviously, he's a fixed income manager. And he just, you know, he's not the guy you want to go have a beer with <laughs> at all. And, and you know, for a lot of PMs, portfolio managers, and a lot of these big money raising, that's a really important skill. You know, do clients like you? Can you tell a good story over dinner? Do you want to go have a beer with them? And that's a really important skill. And to me, that has nothing to do. You can... Whether you're good at that or not doesn't matter because it has nothing to do with managing the money. And I think that's a really important thing. And this is a great segue to the next question. We are mindful of the benefits of a diversified and inclusionary team can have upon an organization. And your efforts in this regard have been remarkable and exemplary for the alternative investment industry. And you have played a leading role in all of this. But the industry still has some journey to go when it comes to attracting and retaining talent relative to women, and indeed endorsing DE&I across the industry at large. Would you agree? Yeah, so one of the big advantages, I think the big advantage when we founded PAMCO, my, myself and the three other co-founders, we all had PhDs. And I think many people thought that that made us geeks or eggheads, probably true. <laughs> but um, it didn't really change, I think, the way we evaluated managers a whole heck of a lot. I think where it really changed is that when you come, you're formed more by the academy, the academy is a very, very interesting place. Um, where I did my graduate work, we had an outstanding, maybe the world's best macroeconomics uh, faculty. 
And frankly, at that time, many of them couldn't stand each other. There's no way you would have ever seen two of them having a cup of coffee with each other. They disagreed violently on certain areas. People would go, how can you have one guy who's almost a Keynesian, another guy a complete monarchist, and, you know, you know, they're both very powerful. How, how do you do this? And I think with that, the, the fact that we all had that background really opened us up to divergent opinions. And so I think we were very much more interested in what you were saying than who was saying it. Um, and I think because of that, um, we did better work because at the end of the day, we're all humbled at many points in our lives by the markets. And so you don't want to have a Greek chorus inside. That's the most damaging thing about any asset manager. Um, it doesn't matter what you and your firm thinks. At the end of the day, the markets are going to do what the markets are going to do. And sometimes it's quasi-rational and sometimes it's quasi-irrational, you know, particularly over a short time. You can find these great moves that don't make a lot of logical sense. And so I think what's important is that you have a very big uh, diversity of opinions. Then when you think about how do you get a diversity of opinions, you get that through a diversity of experiences. So you get people who come up through the traditional maybe iBanking route and then go to asset management, but you get a lot of people who don't come with that experience. Um, and so I think we're very open to that. And as a natural result of that, we ended up hiring a lot of women and ethnic minorities. It wasn't that's what we set out to do. We wanted the diversity of opinions. And then what happens is you get to the sweet spot where you kind of, the firm starts to look more like America and you start to get a lot of people who maybe look like the traditional power structure in asset management who even want to be part of it because they want to work with people who are, look very different. And so it becomes kind of this uh, self-reinforcing um, uh, a wheel. And I think that's really, really important. And I would encourage um, us people who sit on the allocator side to really press firms to really think that they have a diversity of opinions and ideas and really stress test their ideas as opposed to saying that there's a company line. I think having a company line is one of the most devastating uh, uh, problems in investing because you're either going to be right or wrong. And, you know, I'd much rather have people throwing darts at ideas and, um, figuring out what the holes are because no investment's perfect. There's almost always a place where your investment's not going to work and you want to be aware of it beforehand rather than trying rather than trying to manage through it. No, that's that's very clarifying and I um we also appreciate the the work that you've done for 100 women in hedge funds, now 100 women in finance. Um and you know, they're they're doing some great work as well and I, we appreciate that. But it's also apparent to me looking at and discussing with you about your background, how much you value education in general as sort of the game changer, um, you know, not diminishing your successes of, of your own at Yale and Harvard. Um, you mentioned that you were um, pro professor of finance at Amos Tuck School for Business at Dartmouth right around the time PAMCO was formed. Um, but you're now associate editor for the Journal of Alternative Investments, trustee to the Standards Board. Your work with Reed College, the chair for Kaya, um, so many different things. Obviously, these are all educational and background. Why are these individual efforts so critical as you view to the success of the industry? Because for me, in order to make the industry grow and to do the best it can do, it's about discovering and sharing that knowledge. And that's one of the things that's really important. I mean, knowledge is the great equalizer out there. And, you know, as I said, um, you know, over time, I think if people want to have good careers and be good investors, and uh, whether you're in the investment management firm or an allocator side, understanding, asking questions, being curious, finding things out, that's, that's so critical. That's what makes, that's what makes the world go. And it's, it's, it's a, it's an industry that's dominated. I think the one thing that almost all of us in this industry share is curiosity. You know, we all have different backgrounds. We all have different skill sets. But I think one of the things that comes through in this industry is, is that this is an industry that appear, appeals to people who are really curious about things. And, you know, it's a tough industry. I mean, face it, you can have a terrific performance record in many cases, if you just barely uh, uh, beat the median in terms of consistent returns over the long period of time. And 
there's just so many different ways to think about things. And it's an important industry because it sets the prices. I think that's one of the things that people forget is sometimes people think it's just about trading paper or doing deals. But what we're doing is we're setting the prices so these decentralized economies know how to allocate their assets. And I think, you know, I think linking that to the real world, I mean, if people are willing to pay a lot for building steel plants, we need to build steel plants. You know, it's, it's, it makes the real economy. It's the price setting mechanism that makes the real economy run. And I think people forget that. And I think that's a really important function we have. And then the performance of hedge funds. I mean, not to say there's anything wrong about long only index funds, but long only index funds are just investing in what's already won. Hedge funds, you know, whether and, and then privates, venture cap, private equity, all these things, we're all looking at offline opportunities. Most of us are not just doing the standard thing. And that's how you find these new areas, which then sets the price for how the real world should invest. Many in the industry are also thinking about the more transformative issues facing the industry or presenting themselves as opportunities to the industry, whether it is the implementation of ESG, generative AI discussions. Which theme do you see as being the most intriguing? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that makes me nervous are all these slogans. So, I mean, I'll, 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 as people know, I tend to be pretty blunt and speak my mind. If someone said I don't have a mute button, which can be both good and bad. But, you know, AI has been around for a long, long time. I mean, particularly in some of the operations um, research in terms of, of, of back office stuff, you know, in terms of looking for bad trades, trying to find the outliers. People have been using AI for years um, in certain areas. Obviously, the large language models is a new, a new twist to it. But, you know, a lot of these things have been, you know, neural networks have been around since the early 90s. I mean, these things have found sometimes there's solutions looking for a problem. But oftentimes people just don't make a lot of press about it as it goes forward. And, you know, someone was saying quite candidly the other day, you know, it used to be great when people had to like calculate, you know, go and understand companies. You've read Peter Lynch, for those of you who are longtime people, you know, went up on Wall Street, go discover the company, figure out now with all these big data feeds and spreadsheets, you know, it's very hard to do that. But that doesn't mean investing's gone away. And I think the same thing's going to happen with ChatGDP. It'll change the way we work but it won't mean investing's gone out of the way. Um, I, I do have a, a small bone to pick with ESG because I think it's tossed around as one concept where I think there's really three different things there. There's the environmental part, which is having to do mostly, in my view, with climate change. And it's kind of like when you talk politics with, with an investment manager, you're really asking them what do they think is going to happen, not who is their candidate of preference. And, you know, I do think you're going to see a shift away from some of these carbon-based uh, fuels, and you have to factor that in your analysis, regardless of what you think about climate change. It's just, you know, you're investing on what's going to happen. I think, you know, on the social thing, that tends to be diversity, and I do think it's important. Um, we gave a grant at PAMCO to some professors at Northeastern, Raj Agarwal and, and Nicole Boyson, who looked at managers and found that women and men in the hedge fund space manage the same. They have the same risk return pattern. There's not a difference. You know, most of them are very professionally trained. That's how, that's how the world works. But they did notice the women had to produce almost just a little less than 100 basis points a year more to have the same AUM. I do think there's some very active views about what a manager looks like and, 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 and those affect how money flows, not just looking at performance records. And then governance. I think the world should get an F on governance. I can remember when the New York Stock Exchange wouldn't let dual class shares exist. And then they were tired of getting their lunch eaten by NASDAQ. And so they permitted that. I think if you look at some of the governance deals and some of these public companies and the way investors invest in them, I think governance has gone backwards. And I've actually seen a motion by several large um several several large public companies to do things that strengthen the hand of the CEO, you know, that go in different ways. And it's just, I don't understand it because I thought we were going a certain direction on governance. So I think, you know, the sloganeering drives me nuts. Um, it's a fact of life. People like to make headlines. But, um, you know, I think these are, these are all very interesting, important issues, but you can't just solve it with a soundbite. Well, thanks for, thanks for those comments. But obviously, you've had 
a very significant role over the years in shaping our industry. And so with that, how how optimistic you are on a study scale to one to five as to the how this industry is going to play a, a significant part in wealth creation in the next 10 years? How important is that industry? I think the biggest thing is is the alternative in industry. We used to be, and to some extent we still are a little bit, unloved, stereotyped uh, uh, industry. But today, look at every, you know, go down the list of the top 20, 30, 40 asset managers. Most of them do both sides of alternatives, yes or no. I mean, look at some of the big private equity firms. I think almost every big private equity firm has active fixed income trading efforts and other issues. You look at some of the big traditional houses, they all almost have <laughs> have to have skill sets in some of the privates and, 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 and public um, hedge fund strategies. So I just think it's this merging of the industry, you know, and I think the change had to come from outside. And I think it's something the alternatives industry can be super proud of is the change comes from outside. I don't think, I don't think it came, would have come from inside. And I think today there are many more investment offerings. I mean, people say there are more mutual funds and stocks on the York Stock Exchange. You have more ways of thinking about what you could potentially do, um, whether it's right for you and fits for you. And I think it's wonderful because I think we can get better solutions. So what's next for you, Jane? You've done so many remarkable things in an already rich career, but what's next professionally for you? So professionally, I'm looking at a few things. One of the things I, by and large, don't get me wrong, I'm very glad um, I've passed on PAMCO to the next generation. It's something we always wanted to do. We were never into it for a big transaction value. We wanted to pass it on to the next generation. So that's really important. The one, one of the few things I miss about that experience, only one of the few things, believe me, I worked very, very hard hours and everything. But one of the few things I missed about that experience is when you can find arbitrage opportunities occasionally in the markets, you're sitting on a pretty big pile of money you can go and, and harvest that. And so I'm working on a couple of ideas where I think there's some very big, there's some pockets of inefficiency and um, finding ways to potentially team up with others to take advantage of those. So those are, that's interesting. I still actively involved in the markets. I enjoy the markets. I enjoy managers. I enjoy finding, finding opportunities. How about personally? What are, what, anything, anything on the list? No high, jump, no high jumping, uh, Personally, no high jumping. And full disclosure, my husband's a track coach. Occasionally, he'll say, you know, we have some issues with our jumpers. You want to come look at this? And I'm like, no, no, I'm not there. Marital harmony. But um, no, I, 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 I enjoy seeing the development of young people. And, and to the extent that I've been very fortunate in many ways to mentor people, in many cases, women, but in a lot of cases, you know, guys, too. And, you know, to help people move forward, you know, I, as a lot of people have over time sent me emails and asked for help on things, it's like, just pay it forward. You know, the world's going to continue to grow and change. One thing I'm confident of um, is 100 years from now, we're still going to be investing. We'll be investing in a different way than we're investing today. We'll need a way to allocate our resources. I don't think we're going to move to a command economy across the globe. And so the investment function is super important for the real economy. And um, I just wish I could come back in 100 years and see what it looks like. Jane, this has been really terrific and enlightening. And it's really a pleasure to speak with you today and share with the alternative investment world your views and as well as your role in shaping our industry. So on behalf of AMA, KPMG, and the entire alternative investment industry, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. It was a great talking with you today. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Perspectives, done in partnership with KPMG and part of AMA's The Long Short Podcast. We trust you found the discussion both interesting and insightful. You can get the latest episodes by subscribing to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Amazon Music, or streaming directly from AMA.org. Thanks for listening.